Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Think of the story I'm about to tell like a disaster movie, in which the disasters start pretty early on, but they're going to get considerably worse in ways that are initially hard to imagine. The first disaster, as I knew about it anyway, was outlined in a 2018 book called Dying for a Paycheck by Jeffrey Pfeffer. So we've known about this stuff for 30 or 40 years. We've known the health effects of workplace stress for decades, and we haven't done anything. Pfeffer is a professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford, and he told me that the consequences of workplace stress, stemming from unfairness, lack of control, they are real. The title of his book, Dying for a Paycheck, was not, he argued, hyperbole. There's an enormous epidemiological literature on the effects of work practices on people's health. And one of the ways in which work practices affect people's health is directly. But the other way in which work practices affect people's health is through their effect on individual behaviors. So people who are stressed are more likely to smoke more. There's evidence Mm -hmm. for that. They're more likely to drink more. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to overeat. They're more likely, as an article in the New York Times by a psychiatrist, said we call it comfort food for a reason. They are more likely uh, to engage in illicit drug taking. They are less likely to exercise. So stress affects not only people's health directly, but through its effect on their individual health-relevant behaviors. In 2019, the year after his book came out, the World Health Organization seemed to acknowledge something pretty dramatic was going on. There was a syndrome, they said, called burnout, which stems from, quote, chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. Jennifer Moss is an expert on corporate culture who read Pfeffer's book and had spent years speaking around the world about how to create better workplaces. She noticed that the WHO was rethinking the importance of burnout, and she thought, to come back to the disaster movie analogy, this was a disaster. Many companies had no idea what was happening, and their diagnosis of how to deal with it often went something like this. You know, if we just breathe more or, you know, if we do more yoga, if we have more self-care, then we will no longer burn out. And what, you know, researchers have diagnosed for decades is that we're solving it way too further downstream. The six root causes of burnout are lack of fairness, so diversity issues and inclusion issues. People aren't being paid fairly or promoted fairly because of bias or exclusion. We also see that in culture of overwork, so workload, um, and, and there's a legacy of overwork in lots of different industries, particularly healthcare and finance and technology. And so unless we solve for some of these big root causes of burnout, then it's always going to lead to potential catastrophic events. Moss also saw what Pfeffer had seen, that unhealthy workplaces played themselves out on people's bodies. 150,000 people in the U.S. alone die from overwork. When you look at the WHO, they announced, and along with the World Economic Forum, that about 765,000 people can die a year globally from overwork. So we're looking at not just, you know, feeling a little tired and and exhausted from work and, you know, we're we're whining about a problem that isn't real. It's, It's a very real problem. Uh, and and that is why I've been pushing for more awareness of it for, for years now. 
And then, Ma says, a problem that was huge, even though it was somewhat under the radar, collided with a pandemic, which nobody could have seen coming, but the disaster got very big very quickly. She did polling around it. She gathered as much data as she could, talked to folks in powerful and non-powerful positions, and she found out that people were working more than ever. Now, says Jennifer Moss, we're all about to see, over the next several months, the fallout of two disasters coming together. She calls it, in a new book, The Burnout Epidemic, and it, as Pfeffer had warned, will play itself out on people's bodies. What the WHO just recently announced is that anybody that works over 50 hours a week is at 30 percent to 40 percent increase of heart attack or or heart okay. disease. You see that just in pure exhaustion. When you look at Hiroshi, for example, in Japan, it's it's actually um, defined as death by overwork. And that's people working, you know, 100 hours a week and just pure exhaustion leading them to getting sick. We see this a lot in places like China, where there's, you know, connected to their culture to be working as many hours as possible. You see this in the division of labor with disproportionate impact on women this year, having mass exodus from the workforce because they're taking on 20 more hours per week in unpaid labor. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just this unsustainable amount of work that can lead to the impacts of chronic stress. But really, it's just hard on our bodies. We should not be working that much. And when you talk about it being hard on our bodies, it sounds like it's the big picture researchers are looking at. So if you have, let's say, millions of people working too much and working too much is proven to have adverse consequences for heart disease and some percentage of people working too much are going to develop really serious heart disease. And that some of that, of course, does lead to death. It sounds like that's the kind of big picture numbers and big picture moving of the needle that we're we're looking at. Yes. And if you look at healthcare, for example, there is a disproportionate number of female physicians dying by suicide because of their burnout and exhaustion and compassion fatigue. It's about 130 percent above the national average for female physicians and male physicians are about 40 percent above the national average of suicide rates in the U.S. So, you know, that is something that we need to consider, too, is just the not only just the impact of us, you know, physically. But what happens when we're burning out, you know, we're starting to feel more disconnected from our jobs. We're feeling more cynical. So we feel less hope. But once we actually hit that wall where we're burned out, and and that's how Dr. Marie Asberg describes it. She's based in Stockholm and Sweden is the only place where there's pharmacological and programmatic responses to burn burnout. They call it extreme um, exhaustion disorder. But what she says is that point, you're now feeling shame, you're feeling guilt, you're you're feeling this place where you are fatalist about who you are and what you're doing. So words mm. like, I'm not good at my job, I never was good at my job, I can't do this, I have no more hope. And that's when you hit hit a wall. So there's a bunch of different things that are happening at that point where you've actually hit levels of burnout, like where I am done, that Mm -hmm. intermingle. So it's not just a physical response, but an emotional and mental toll that it's taking on your mind and body. So how, you know, I know you talked about the World Health Organization defining burnout in 2019. Now, I mean, 
people worked in 1980. They worked in 1960. They worked in 1940. And we could keep going back. They've been working for a long time. Um, you know, did people just not burn out as much in 1965 or was there burnout, but nobody was talking about it? There's been burnout, you know, since building the pyramid with Egyptians, you know, we're we're talking pretty far back here where there's a delta between those people in the working class. They died around, you know, half the age of those who were not doing the Hmm. work. So you're always, you know, seeing this throughout the ages. You're seeing this particularly for women during the war and sort of the evolution in historical, when you look at it over time, you see that there's certain groups that tend to be burnout more than others. And that's often because they're marginalized. They're not getting compensated in the same way. They're working longer for less. They are feeling like even though they work, they can't get ahead. So again, so not only do these groups already deal with marginalization and lack of agency, and there's a lot of control in that group, but then they go into the workforce and then that just adds more to how they already feel in society. So it's a very dynamic relationship that the workplace plays surrounding burnout as it relates to vulnerable and marginalized groups. And do you think that um, was there an inflection point any at any time in the last five or 10 or 15 or 20 years where you feel like modern work just got worse or it's just always been pretty bad? It depends on where you live in the world. In certain places, this has been an issue for a long time, but specifically with the advancement of technology, with this ability to be on everywhere all the time, we've started to add incremental minutes to the day. This last year, we added 48 minutes to our workday. Um, which is which is <laughs> shocking and clearly un- unsustainable. We can't add 48 minutes every year. We'll be working all night. That, exactly. I mean, already people were overworked. You know, North America, you see these averages of 50, 60 hour work weeks and then in certain industries worse. And then you add this extra hour. I mean, you think at 60 hours, the extra whatever, five to seven hours a week wouldn't be the killer, but it actually does set people completely over the edge. And we've seen this this year in particular, too, with as people work more remote, that's that's great. But there's still an expectation to have, you know, productivity. And sometimes there is an expectation to be even more productive to prove that we can do all of this well remote. Mm -hmm. And so this year we had an increase just of you know, working during COVID, we had to increase the amount of work that we did by about 30% to just hit the pre-COVID productivity or engagement goals that were already established. And no one really, you know, tried to put in the buffer that we're dealing with a global pandemic and chronic stress and, you know, all those other external events that could be maybe impacting, you know, our levels of concentration or motivation or engagement. And the fact that we have all these distractions at home also played into that. So that capacity to work remote, the capacity to be virtual and digital is also increasing the amount of time that we're, we're working and we're not actually engaging in our home life. Um, yeah. So you described the last year as having been really, really tough. You did a sort of poll with Harvard Business Review. Uh, pulled, they pulled 1,500 workers 
almost 90% in the fall of 2020, so here we were like six months into the pandemic, said their work life was getting worse. Um, More than half said they'd experienced burnout often or extremely often in the past three months. Um, Did you, the minute things started shutting down in March of 2020, did you know this would happen? Were you surprised? I wasn't surprised. I could see, you know, already people talking about really early on how everything just went from, you know, having mastery over what they did. They were feeling effective. They felt like they knew their job back and forth. And, Mm -hmm. you know, suddenly they are trying to lead teams remotely. They are throwing everything at the wall to try to increase team building. They had Mm. no idea how to actually make that function. You know, all of a sudden you see people doing yoga with their boss or there's calm apps being downloaded. And, you know, people were really not enjoying it. Employees felt like well-being was workload. They were embarrassed to be stretching and bending in front of mm-hmm. their coworkers and their boss. They were doing these Zoom cocktails with friends that felt exhausting. Mm-hmm. And all I could think about at that point was I had just written about 20,000 words for the book that I had to scrap. But what I had been writing already was about always on cultures and digital burnout and just this need to consider how much consumption we were already engaging in. And -hmm. then, boom, you go from Zoom actually looked at their data and found that in 2019, there was around 10 million daily active users. By the time March 20th, and they measured sort of at the end of March, they were up to 200 million daily active users. And this, you know, right now, Microsoft Teams is at 150 million. They doubled in the amount of users as well. So (laughs) You can imagine if it was a problem before and then now all of a sudden that's how you're engaging. We also found that loneliness and isolation had really increased. And something that I'd been writing about before, too, was I'd been talking about loneliness for a while as a a problem. You know, the the impact on our health, on our mortality, as Cigna's um, big study found, is about smoking 15 cigarettes a day on our health. So loneliness is already dramatically impactful on us. But then now where we would go to work and at least have one close friend or someone that we could kibitz with and talk you know, about our kids with or whatever it was that we were interested in. We don't have that anymore. There's an increase in single occupancy dwellings. We've seen a rise in some urban centers. There are up to 60 to 70 percent of people living actually physically alone in their own space. So then that, again, you know, crises exacerbates an existing problem. And then what happens is it explodes uh, an already big problem. So those were two big factors. And our research Research, when we looked at the themes of the qualitative responses, people were saying things, you know, especially our younger workforce were saying things like, I just started this job in a pandemic. I've never met my boss. I don't have a yeah. relationship with my coworkers. You know, I feel like my career is being set back two years. And one of the things that is a root cause of burnout as well is a skills mismatch. And there's young people that have come out of the economic crises now becoming overqualified, going back to school, upgrade their skills. They get hit again. So now they're 
even more overqualified and they're not on a path to be able to be leveraged and utilized in a way that's, you know, satisfying for them. So they're likely on a path to burnout if that's not being managed properly. So again, it's all of these things coming together, particularly for millennial and Gen Z groups that are highly negatively impactful on them. break here. I'm Karen Miller. I'm talking with Jennifer Moss. She's the author of The Burnout Epidemic. You can find or share our whole conversation by heading to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, how the back-to-work push in September may look. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Karen Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If Raid Urshid was looking for a sign that life had become, to use his word, unrecognizable, it came a few months after he started working from home. Late September, early fall 2020, and it came, perhaps not surprisingly, from the clock. I think the first moment I realized was when... I kept telling myself, oh, I just need to do this one more thing. And then I looked up at the time and it was about three hours past when I would usually have left the office pre-pandemic. Urshid is a software engineer who works in biotech and lives in the Boston area. And this was probably the third or fourth day in a row where something of that nature had happened. And I was like, oh, something is something is off here. And it was off. Work was part of his home life now, and home had swallowed work. Early on, it seemed a lot of people that I talked to seemed to struggle with the like the time blurring and like, oh, I'm working here, but I'm also living here and watching TV here and everything just kind of melded into one. And people seemed to struggle with that. Urshid was exhausted. He had Zoom fatigue. He skipped online social get-togethers, even though he ordinarily liked to do social stuff in person which is pretty much what burnout looks like, according to Jennifer Moss, who has studied the phenomenon. So it's essentially workplace stress left unmanaged, and it usually shows up in sort of emotional distance from one's job. So cynicism, it shows up in lack of engagement. It shows up in, you know, extreme exhaustion. And it really is um, surprisingly, I think for a lot of people, an ecosystem response. So it's, you know, not an organization uh, alone, their problem to solve, but it's not an individual's problem to solve alone. It's sort of a we problem to solve. Moss has been an expert on workplace culture for years. She's written about it for the Harvard Business Review and is the author of the book, The Burnout Epidemic. She says companies have tried to embrace wellness strategies like more exercise for employees, stuff like that. But that just takes you from good to great, she says. It doesn't fix disaster. And disaster, she worries, is what we're up against. This fall, certainly, some weight is going to be lifted off parents' shoulders as kids go back to school. But that's also when the crushing commute may begin again. An anxiety about getting back into patterns that many of us have forgotten. There's going to be a lot of benefits to a return to, you know, quote unquote, normal or new normal. But I I think that we have to understand 
that there's a recovery period ahead. So it's not going to just feel like, wow, we're back at work. We feel really good. The kids are back to school. The whole pandemic thing is gone now. It's in, in the past. Mm-hmm. September is notoriously a very stressful time of year. You look at Google's misery index and it's actually the least happy time, most miserable time of the year mm. in general. Okay. I write about September stress every year. For some people going back to school, there's nostalgia and it creates hope and excitement. For a lot of people, it actually creates this embedded anxiety about returning to school in September. People feel like the change of season stresses them out. You know, it's worse in northern climates versus southern climates. So just Hmm. there's stuff that's happening in September already that is cyclical. But then you have... You know, employers that want to just make September the the date to return, no matter what right. it's like in their city or community or country. It's like September's back to work, and people don't know what that means. Will there be mass? Will people be expected to vaccinate? Will they not? How am I going to feel when I have, go back to work and I have all the social anxiety? What if I have you know physical anxiety? So we're sort of creating this return to work. And a lot of organizations are not actually asking, you know, how are you feeling? What are your stresses? What's going on with you? It's just come back. And I think that we're going to see a a potential real echo pandemic of mental health or mental illness and stress because we've just tried to make something that it isn't. We need to know that this is nuanced. We've had 20 months of ingrained patterns. Our neuroplasticity has changed. Our behaviors and patterns have changed, and they're going to take some time to adjust. Um, And so a lot of that communication still, I'm not seeing it in the way that it should be within organizations and leadership. So for companies, is it just a question of of, of actually communicating to you, asking what your feelings are. Because if you look at it from the company's point of view, it seems like a really hard needle to thread. Like, I mean, I, I know there's all different advice legally about requirements, like what can you require people to be vaccinated? And then what does that even mean if there's variants? And then what does it even mean if somebody got vaccinated in December? Is this is in September? Are we going to consider that? Like, uh, you know, is it going to have worn off to some degree or not? Are we never going to worry about things? You get one vaccination, you're good to go for the next 10 years. Like, do you see what I mean? I, I think from a company's point of view, I don't know that they even know what to communicate. The uncertainty has plagued leaders and organizations for the last you know, 18 months. It's It's been a difficult needle to thread, as you, you mentioned. And that's why you saw the yoga and the other, you know, the other kind of well-being tactics at the beginning, because they were just unsure. They were trying to figure it out and they didn't know. And so there has been a lot of pressure on on leaders to to know how to lead through a pandemic and they have no frame of reference. So I have been trying to work with employees to help them understand that their boss isn't, you know, a magic or doesn't have special skills to deal with their own stress and their own uncertainty. They don't have a crystal ball either. But there is an expectation on leaders to get it completely right. And we have this unrealistic hope that our organizations are just going to figure it out. So uh, what I've been saying is just, this is an agile approach. We are fluid. I'm not going to be married to any decisions, but this is what we're hoping to start for 
this stage. It's going to be done. And what I recommend is in a slow way and, you know, bringing people in as they start to feel more comfortable with the goal of Mm -hmm. saying by this date, I'd like to have people in two days a week, three days a week, five days a week, whatever the the goal is, and making sure that employers are very clear about that and and truthful, you know, not say we're going to have a hybrid approach, but then, you know, six months from now say, okay, now I want everyone back to work, you know, commit to a year to two year strategy around what that looks like and give people goals. If you are looking to be that company that gets you back five days a week, don't say come back, everyone deal with it. September say come back, you know, in these pockets, um, making sure that people that are on teams are in at the same time together. So you don't have one person just going in from a team, not seeing any of their teammates because they'll Hmm. just be equally isolated. You know, there's a lot of tactical ways of thinking about how to make this most effective in an empathetic way for the individual, but also to make it successful for your organization. So you don't have a whole bunch of people saying, see you later. Attrition is a real big problem right now. There's a lot of talent out there and people can say, I don't want to be at work if this is not suiting me. So, you know, to be competitive, employers are going to have to get really smart about how they approach this back to work situation. Let me ask you about that. I have read quite a bit about a huge number of people going out onto the job market because, Maybe, as you say, they've been very stressed over the last year. They're not sure that they fit into that organization anymore. Things have changed. This has just been a time of reevaluating. Is this really what I want to do? If that is the case, is it going to be a game of musical chairs where they end up at a company that's very similar? They think like there must be a better company out there, but actually companies are not changing. Well, companies are are realizing that their competitor that has the exact same potential role that they're competing for has more flexibility, they could lose, you know, that person to that. And, I, and I've been having these, you know, debates with my husband about what is actually going to, because he's in that same space too. And we've been talking about how this is actually going to change. And, you know, he's a bit more pessimistic than I, I am. But I, I think it's more just that I think it's going to be driven by the war for talent. I think we're going to see that that company has to offer flexibility to compete with this mm. other organization that doesn't have it. And then that organization is going to have to realize, okay, I'm losing a lot of high performance people. So I better step up my game. And so we're going to actually see, you know, well-being strategies and burnout prevention strategies and, you know, actual real change because there's people are just saying, I'd rather I'd rather not work than not have flexibility or I'd rather work for this other company for a, a pay cut to have flexibility. And the thing is, is once you've experienced not commuting, once you've experienced being able to have flexibility to pick up your kids after work, once you've actually gone through the knowing, you can't go back to not knowing. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm, I think employers mm -hmm. just don't realize that people get it now. Two hours of commute versus taking, say, 15% pay cut we're finding people are doing that. Um, we're seeing that particularly in women who are saying, I will take at upwards, and this is a new research done from Stanford, upward of 15%. I mean, that's pretty significant. So if hmm. it's the old transactional ways of I'm going to just pay you more, you know, you'll do more for me. That's not the way, you know, it is going to be in the future of work. And so they'll be, sh- they'll be shifting inside of organizations now. 
let, let me ask you about the, that it, uh, sort of how business culture has long thought about work. Um, uh, you, you've written, you know, there are doctors and nurses who have 16 hour shifts, even though there is research that after about 12 hours, which is working from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So that's not that's not a small amount of work. Um, errors skyrocket. Um, Elon Musk at Tesla has said you have to work long hours. And, and I think the number he gave was something like 80 hours a week to really get things done. Um, but there's research showing after about 55 hours of work a week. Uh, you're you're actually not any more productive. Like it kind of tops out there. Um, and I was thinking, like, fifty five hours a week. What is that? That's eight hours a day, seven days a week. That's fifty five hours. He's advocating eighty. Um, does the does a culture uh, that orbits around hard work is the best and you are the best if you do it? Does it change because of like one year of a pandemic? Probably. Not. Um, and that's okay. maybe my pessimistic hat coming back on. You know, I joke that I've gone from being a happiness expert to an unhappiness expert. But I think that we have we have a long way to go. I mean, I look at healthcare, for example, notorious for burnout. There's a legacy of burnout and it also attracts, you know, those who have high perfectionist concerns. They're mm-hmm. people that are really driven and it starts in grade school. You're already looking at what college you're going to get into and then how we're going to get into a specific type of, you know, med school that's going to get you into that job that you want that's very specific. Mm-hmm. So it's already that culture is driven really early on. And then you have technology, um, the tech industry, where you have those Elon Musk that are still saying you have to keep working at this level. But there are cracks. People like we're looking at Jack Dorsey, where we're like, that's BS. And he's calling it. He's saying Elon Musk is full of crap because it's not actually true. So I think What's happening is these groups, these uh, the people that are leading the charge on this are actually burning out themselves. And this Mm. year has really taught them there's been this shift. And I keep hearing it from leaders talking about how there's been more of a flattening of hierarchy, because when they went through it as a parent juggling they were stuck at home because all different levels had to go through the exact same thing. It created a collective trauma, but it also created collective empathy. And so there's been more of it being experienced themselves where now they can address it more seriously. But it's a long road to to take legacy. And then you also see, for example, in, in healthcare right now, I see doctors and nurses, again, with the, the massive heat and climate change and all of these reasons why they're yeah. back in these catastrophic events. It's like one catastrophic event to another that they they can't even pull themselves away. And we're seeing shortages in that industry already. We can't even pull them out of the hospitals, out of practice or care, and they can't get time themselves to rest. So as we see our world sort of shifting in this way that it's shifting, unless we start to get preventative, it's going to be impossible to give this certain industries a break. Right. Well, and one of the other questions swirling around, if we uh, come back to the office, um, and I have this debate with people sometimes, is you see in research that People who are in charge of offices want employees to be physically there because then like managers can walk around. They can see if people are doing things. They can just check in. Um, The people who work under them, though, don't 
often want to be back in. So one of the questions is, by power of magnetism, do people come back in over time? Because, you know, obviously you have a, a contingent of folks who do want to come back in. And I've talked to some of those people. They start coming back in. Other people are like, well, gee, these people are getting noticed by the boss. Maybe they're getting promoted. So then they start coming in. And and, and soon enough, you are back to where you were. So I just wonder if for jobs that, yes, maybe technically can be done offsite uh, remotely, is there nevertheless this magnetic pull that even though you think, oh, things are going to be completely different, in the end, it's really just all the same? Yeah, well, absolutely. We're seeing some organizations just saying digital first entirely and they're shuttering offices. So there yes. won't be the same opportunity to go back to work. But there's others that have started to backtrack a bit, you know, go back to Jack Dorsey, but Twitter was going to be fully remote forever. And now they've sort of wound that back a bit. Um, you're going to see more people over time think, OK, well, this was an experiment. Some it will work and some it will not. But there is an issue for a group of people to be remote or one or two people in a team to be remote and the other who are in the office just like I said, like hanging out with the boss. Right. And and right. I wrote about this remote teams and the, and the impact on them. This was pre-pandemic and often they would not get promoted at the same rate. They weren't recognized. The way that they were evaluated was totally different. And it's because managers didn't feel like they really knew them that well. And you do bond with people when you're with them in person. You make those right. connections. And so when it comes to a group that's sort of 50-50 or 30-70, there is going to be that fear for those remote employees that they have to go back in to have that same level of opportunity. But what we're seeing now is that some of these people would give up these opportunities to be working from home because for them, that's the perk. It, it's a really, I think there's a TBD on all of this right now. You know, how... How well can we have a remote workforce forever at home workforce or a digital first workforce versus a hybrid? You know, is that going to be good or will people that go back to five days a week because their employer wants that? Are they just going to say no thanks? You know, I'd, I want to get out of this right, environment. Right, right. I think finance is going to be the most interesting because they're the ones that are really pushing to be client facing, to be in the office. It's They're back to sort of, this is how it was before. This is how it's always going to be back in the office. No questions asked. They're, I'm not seeing a lot of flexibility in, in that industry in the same way as others. And so we're going to see if that really impacts, you know, the future of work in these organizations. Also, we're seeing technology change inside of banking, for example, and inside of finance, you know, the growth of a lot of technology this year where much of it was online and, you know, mm -hmm. big surges in, in companies like Wealthsimple and others where banking is going to be disrupted in another way. How are we going to deal with, you know, really exciting our employees working, you know, nine to nine or eight to midnight, right, not, right, you know, right. seven days a week versus being able to, you know, work for some of these new innovations that are allowing them to work remote. So um, there's another challenge for the financial industry to be considering when, when they're being disrupted currently.
I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Jennifer Moss. She's the author of The Burnout Epidemic. We're going to take a brief break here. We'll be back for our final few minutes. If you want to read Jennifer's work on burnout, what it is, how it's accelerated during the pandemic, we've got it for you at our website, innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH Radio, this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Burnout at work was a big deal. If you just look at the numbers, long before the pandemic. It made people less healthy, which impacts weight and heart disease and blood pressure, how long you live. Then there was 2020, during which author Jennifer Moss told me, we put our foot on the accelerator. I keep telling people working from home in a pandemic while you're homeschooling, for me, it was three kids in three different grades. That is not what homeschooling Easy, nothing. is like. It is <laughs> nothing not to like it. That. Yeah, so, <laughs> so we can't compare that, you know. And the fact that we did, you know, have show productivity and that we could do it was a miracle. It was incredible. Yeah. Thing was, it was hard to stay home with kids. Also hard though, if you were home alone, it was hard when the lines between home and work blurred because you never went anywhere. And it was hard when you had to leave home to work long hours at a hospital or at a grocery store. Moss says pre-pandemic, about 150,000 deaths a year in the U.S. were linked to workplace stress. Now we live in a world with a lot more uncertainty and a lot more stress, which plenty of us are struggling with. My daughter had been away in school for her freshman year, and so now all of a sudden she was home. And so I had to account for that and make sure that she was taken care of and her needs were taken care of. But I also had a son who's in the fifth grade, and he needed summer activities to do, which in a pandemic was really difficult to arrange for. Katrina Campbell runs an international consulting business. She teaches at Rutgers University. Juggling kids and work has taken a huge toll on Campbell because the break that she kept looking for, the one she thought was right around the corner, it never really came. And so all that time that I thought I would have to devote to work and preparing for the next semester and teaching summer school and working on contracts, I had to carve out some of that time um, to not just be regular mom, but be kind of over the top mom doing all of the other things that my children needed um, for the summer. So it really had a major effect on my whole life. But work, too, started to balloon, devouring just about everything. Because I have clients that are located all around the world, I mean, I think we have five to nine hour time zone differences, depending on the contract that I'm working on. I could be working any time of the day or night. I have had times when I've had six or seven o'clock in the morning calls, and then I had to get on for class, onto the platform for class, and then get off of that and then go back to having calls and then work at night after dinner. And so that absolutely made me feel like there's no hour in the day where I just have downtime and I can just be myself and just not have to focus on work. And Katrina Campbell's story, though it is the story of one individual, it's also the story of a nation, a nation that in some ways wants things to go back to normal and in other ways may not really be ready. I have some fears around 
particularly when I mentioned September and people coming back, I think it's it's going to be a shock to the system. You know, it was interesting the other day, and I've noticed this, I've talked to a few of my friends who have had, you know, a day or two back in the office or my husband the other day, you know, woke up and realized, oh, he was having an actual day with his team, but had completely forgotten it because it was totally out of context again. And he's racing out the door and trying to get his clothes on and his face shaved. And he's like, it's just so my body's not used to this. It's just not used to this behavior. Jennifer Moss is the author of the book, The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. And she argues that a country, a world really, that was having trouble with work burnout two years ago, now can add on to that work days that expanded during the pandemic, mounting social anxiety, stressed families, and potentially a new tide of burnout. You know, people are going to be going in thinking I have to be professional, productive. I'm basically making new friends again with my old friends that were peers that I was comfortable with. Uh, You know, all of these things are going to happen and it's going to kind of happen simultaneously. And then we have kids going back to school. We have, you know, more people on the road. We have buses that we're dealing with. I think that that is going to really jar the entire workforce. And it's going to make people feel, you know, feel like it's them that they're not able to do it. There's going to be increased fear. They're going to wonder if they should stay in their job. We're probably going to see attrition. We're going to probably see people leave or feel like I'm not mentally healthy enough. So take leave. Mm -hmm. And I think that is going to be something that we have to really be able to label and understand that this is just that we're getting comfortable again and that it's going to feel awkward because we're not ready entirely for that all to happen at the same time unless that's communicated really really well and effectively and we are able to have enough self-awareness around it as individuals there's going to be kind of this explosion that happens sort of this next quarter Uh, Do I think that's permanent? No. I think that we are going to get used to anything because we normalize. That's what we do. You know, humans are really, really great at cognitive optimism and great at, you know, developing hopefulness and emotional flexibility. We're excellent at that. But I, I do think that it's something that we need to be highly aware of when it comes to September and this next sort of phase of return to work. It sounds like you think bosses are going to encounter a lot of it, even if they're not expecting it. People saying, I got to take time off or I'm leaving or or something, just something not that great that they don't expect. Absolutely. I think that they're going to, you know, want to ramp up and they're going to feel like it's time to go back. And I know a lot of leaders have a different mindset about that. They're just, they're really ready to go back. They're ready to be with their team and to get those goals and to have normalcy again. And I think everyone else desires that too. But yeah. the reality is that our our minds, our brains don't necessarily do exactly as what we you want them to. And when you have a pattern of behavior, you you know, you have changed. It's like all of a sudden, you know, in March of last year, that same feeling 
is going to be replicated again when we return. And what we were used to and the behaviors that we're used to, even just being able to get up and walk to our computer in our office without having to change our clothes. Uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned this before, but showers are down by 30%, you know, this year. No, I didn't know that. Showers are down by 30%. Okay. Showers are down by 30%, which is, you know, hilarious. And yet, you know, sort of <laughs> disturbing stat. It, people are just not following even like, you know, regular hygiene and all of those things have changed. I mean, we have a new whole type of fashion that's like leisure workwear. So we are, we are going to feel that and, and maybe some of us won't identify it. And that's what creates the discomfort. Our brains want to go back to a stasis, a state of comfort. And if that means being more reclusive, moving back to home, saying, I don't think I can do this. You know, we want managers to be able to say, how do we make that more comfortable for people? How do we ease people into something that's going to feel like a massive sudden shift in the way that they used to be working? A final question for you. If somebody's hearing this, they're, they're a worker, they're not particularly in charge of their, their company or even their team, um, and they're hearing what you're saying and they're thinking, you know, yeah, I do actually feel very burnt out. Um, this has been a super hard year for me. It could be because I had kids at home, because I had no kids at home. Like, it, there's a lot of different reasons why it could be. Um, what what should they do about it if they don't run things? You know, that's a really great question. And one of the things I've been doing and, you know, myself and suggesting to those folks that are going to be back. So for me, I'm going back to a lot of in-person bookings where I'm going to be speaking on a stage again, instead of just, uh-huh. you know, yeah. having a relationship with this green dot that has become, you know, my <laughs> ally, you know, yeah. no, no feedback. I've had to learn how to, you know, speak to people where I don't know if they're laughing or if they're yawning. So I'm going to be going back to a stage. And so I'm also going to be traveling and my spouse is going to be here with the kids. And so we're talking about what that actually looks like. And I've been really suggesting to people first, spend some time really assessing what is it that you want out of going back to work. You know, you've been working this whole time. So that's a stupid way of thinking about it. You know, you're not going back to anything. You've been working probably even harder this whole time. But like that change, you know, what Mm, is it that you want? How do you feel about it? You have to label if you're nervous and what are the things that you're feeling you know, nervous about? Are you worried even just about safety protocols? What's this going to look like? And really label it and spend some time determining what are your red lines in your own learning this year and intentionally thinking about work for you as a place of, you know, healthiness and happiness and enjoyment and, you know, work is work and there's lots of days that are hard. And I know as a person who loves my job, I still work a lot. I get it. But we've had this ability to sort of face our mortality. We've had an ability to to really look at what intentionally we want. We've had more time to spend with our family. We've, you know, determined that some things are really more important than something else. So think mm-hmm. about it. You have control and choice in that and, and, and decide, you know, what are the things that you are really want? And then if it is, I am going back to work, you know, good, bad, and the ugly, 
then think about those stresses and, and preventing those. So if it is social anxiety, how about calling up one of your coworkers, you know, and saying, hey, let's go and grab a bite to eat a couple times before we go back into the office before everyone's there. You know, right. really foster one person that you want to have an ally that is going to be in the office. So when you go in on day one and everyone's there, you know, you have that person's face that feels familiar again, you know, get mm-hmm. move into it slowly, um, making sure if it's physical fears that you're having, check Check the guidelines. Talk to your manager now about what the plan is. What is the strategy? You know, you're feeling a little bit uncertain about, you know, just that physical safety piece. What is happening if your employee employer isn't sharing that with you? Find out what that looks like. What will the desk setup be? You know, those types of questions. If we can have more, you know, certainty and control of the controllables, it does make us feel a little bit more calm and relaxed and less stressed going in if we're going in sort of all at once, all together, that is a really good way for us to at least be able to hold on to what, you know, we can. And then really just build up that psychological fitness, you know, reflect and reframe on this last year. What did you learn? What did skills did you develop? You know, how are you going to predict future stress? Way better because you now have a frame of reference. If it's not a global pandemic, you pretty much, you know, can can deal with it. So again, you know, it's, it's a, it's a frame of reference thing. And the more you can reframe, the more you develop that cognitive resiliency, the more you can go back and sort of realize that this is another, you know, this too shall pass moment, and you will actually be able to deal with it in a way that you probably powerfully have dealt with it this last 20 months. Jennifer Moss is author of the book, The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. Jennifer, thank you so, so much. This is really interesting. Thanks so much for having me. If you missed any part of this discussion and you want to hear the whole thing, Innovation Hub is on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. On our website, we're going to have more about burnout, including the incredible expansion of the workday during the pandemic, which grew by 48 minutes in one year, and why millennials might be a particularly burnt out generation. That's all at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Abby Bagini. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub.